let's say the guy's name is Bill, <laughs> who's trying to raise capital. You know what stands in Bill's way? What's that? Bill. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Welcome to the Fueling Deals Podcast, the podcast that teaches how to accelerate your business growth through all types of deals. It's time to fuel up. So buckle in with your host, Corey Kupfer. There are only two ways to grow your business organically through sales, marketing, providing great service, et cetera, and inorganically through deals. Too many companies focus only on the first way, organic growth. Welcome to the podcast, which will accelerate your business growth inorganically. My guests are a huge variety of deal makers and experts on all types of deals who have personal experience that will help you grow, get clear, learn best practices, and avoid mistakes. We discuss everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My guest today is Joel Block. Joel is a money business insider, a long-term venture capitalist and hedge fund ma manager. And this is the part of his bio that I love. It says it's gobbledygook for professional investor, which is really what Joel is. He lives in a shark tank world like on TV. Since selling his publishing company to a Fortune 500, Joel keynotes conferences worldwide, delivering business strategies and the inside track for money and success to business executives and their teams. I know Joel through the National Speakers Association. He's the immediate past president of the LA chapter, and he and I have gotten to know each other through that. And I'm so thrilled to have Joel on the show. Welcome, Joel. Hey, Corey, thanks very much. How are you? I am great. It's, uh, it's great to have you here because, uh, Joel, you have a you know, you have a particular experience and, and expertise in uh, in the hedge fund world, but but really, you know, more broadly than that, uh, you understand the path to the money is often the way you say it. And uh, there are so many uh, entrepreneurs and, and growing businesses and larger companies who, frankly, can do a lot better at that. So um, I'm I'm really thrilled to have your expertise uh, for our audience. Well, listen, uh, I love the entrepreneur business. It's been very good to me, and I do what I can to help other entrepreneurial and privately held companies to be the best that they can be. And the one thing that most people really are not able to grab onto, which is your area, is is the whole area of capitalization and deal making. And I mean, listen, that's I, I do it every day. That's that's how I make my living and that's how I, you know, get my job done. Uh, but most people don't understand it. So let's bring some of that info to them, you know, to the people who need it. Absolutely. So before we delve into that a little further though, I want to take you back uh, and I want to when you were growing up, what did you want to be growing up? Because my guess is it probably wasn't a hedge fund manager. <laughs> you know, it's so funny you say that because I always make a joke that when you're 10, you don't want to be a hedge fund manager. But when you're, but when you're a little older, it's, it's a pretty cool thing. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so what, what, what was it when you were growing up? Well, when I was probably till I was about 10, I wanted to be a doctor. And, and I don't know why uh, that kind of fell away, but you know, I, I really ended up not being that great in advanced math or chemistry or biology. I, I didn't really have any interest in those things. So I got a little older. Um, and by the way, I'm a CPA. Uh, I started in the CPA business. I don't practice, haven't practiced in a long, long time. Um, and contrary to what uh, many people uh, think, uh, CPAs are not great at math. They're great at arithmetic. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't, <laughs> CPAs aren't really much of mathematicians, but uh, I don't, you know, I don't really remember what I wanted to be after about age 10 or 11. I, I don't really remember, but, uh, and maybe I didn't really know through college, which is why I didn't do that great in college. But when I got to Price Waterhouse uh, doing tax work, that's when I figured it out. 
Got it. And then what was your, however you define this, what was your first real business? Well, um, I did my first little deal uh, when I was about 10 years old. Me and another guy bought a, a little mini bike. Uh, we we fixed it up and we sold it to another kid. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love it. So and, you know, so, it's like it had a had a motor on it, and uh, somebody's parents helped us to get the motor going. And I don't know, we probably bought it for five dollars and sold it to somebody for ten. And that was money came out of thin air, which was very very cool. And I didn't understand why that happened, but it was awesome that it did. I love that a deal, a deal that you're uh, at ten years old. And you also uh, learned about your first business partnership, huh? <laughs> and you know what? It was successful. We didn't have a contract, and, <laughs> and, and, no, and nobody hit each other. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. I love it. So, so uh, just give us a couple of a uh, couple of more minutes on on you know on, on what you are doing now. And I know um, you know there's been somewhat of a transition. I mean, I know you. Uh, you know, hedge fund manager, seminar company, and now you're doing a lot more speaking and training and that kind of stuff. So give us, give us a little, little detail there. Well, listen, I've been, uh, I was in venture capital for a long time. I, I started after Pricewaterhouse. Uh, the last deal at Pricewaterhouse that I worked on was a giant real estate syndicator. I was doing the tax work. I was a young kid, but I, I was involved on a, on a team. We were doing the tax work uh, where we were converting the books and records of 500 partnerships into tax returns. And, and it was dreadful work. I just hated it. But I loved reading the partnership agreements, and I knew that I wanted to be a deal maker like the guys that were running these deals. So I quit the firm, and, and I went in that business. I started a little company, uh, me and another guy. Uh, we just found a building, and we cold called a bunch of doctors, and we broke every security rule that there was, but, but that's how we got started. And, and, and from there, I, you know, I did a series of deals, and then I fell into a venture capital transaction uh, in 1990, about four years later. And then um, from there, um, uh, built a company that uh, delivered, we delivered stock quotes to investors by fax. And I got a, a large company to put up $10 million to, uh, to back this and went to Wall Street, started selling subscriptions. And by the way, not all the, not all the investment was in cash. A lot of it was advertising credits and, and what we, the things that we would have used the cash for. So uh, we got a lot of strategic support from this organization, and uh, I sold the rights to uh, to use our service uh, to one of the big Wall Street brokerage firms, and we got like thirty five of the nation's biggest newspapers to promote it around the country. It was a it was a pretty well known deal at that time. Then I ended up selling it to a Fortune five hundred company, and then just started doing deals. After that, I was you know I'd buy and sell companies, so I've been involved in about forty different transactions. Uh, and then started a fund when, when things were going really south in, uh, in the late 2000s. I started a fund to buy distressed assets. And about the same time, in about 2008, I got a call from an executive of one of the biggest real estate companies in the country. <clears throat> and the guy said, hey, listen, we found you on the internet. Uh, can you come out here and show us how to raise capital to buy real estate? And, and that kind of gave birth to uh, the syndication hedge fund symposium. Uh, that I do twice a year, where I teach uh, real estate fix and flippers and guys that want to learn how to raise capital, how to structure transactions. Uh, I, I teach these guys <clears throat> how to do this and and really raise their capital the way Wall Street does, and to really kind of take it up a notch. So uh, that's that's some kind of a secondary thing that kind of just came out of thin air, but it's turned out to be a wonderful network of uh, of people and 
uh, it's been awesome. So those are really the two main things. And now as I get ready to retire from my hedge fund, I'm doing more speaking and I'm invited to uh, different places. So I, I talk to companies about how to get the inside track on, uh, you know, in their business, how to be the best they can, how to draw the shortest line to the money and really how to, how to just do a good job in what they do. So, uh, so there's a lot in there that uh, can really provide value to our audience. Uh, so I want to go back to that, that, that first big deal you did, that $10 million uh, investment chunk of it was in kind, right? Um, you know, you were a relatively new company. You were, uh, you know, a comparatively young guy. Uh, how did you make that deal happen? You won't believe this. Um, it wasn't even a relatively young company. I didn't even have a business plan. <laughs> I, I didn't have anything. Uh, but I had an idea. And the idea was so compelling and it was so exciting and I was so excited about it that the executives in this company uh, got as excited as I did. And that really is the name of the game is you have to genuinely be excited about what it is that you do. You have to genuinely believe in it. If it's just a transaction, uh, you know, you, you'll get something, but you're not going to get a lot. If you really want a lot, then you have to really demonstrate that you know you have what it takes to go the distance, and that you're not going to burn out on this, and that you're not going to you know just go south on it. So, uh, this company really believed that I had something, and I didn't understand their needs at the time, but they had very strategic needs for what it was that uh, that I brought to them. And by the way, they weren't the first company that I brought it to. I probably showed it to a hundred companies before I showed it to them. Uh, you know, I just I just was cold calling and going to conferences and trade shows. And trying to you know get people to see what this was, and and this company just really liked it. And it turns out it's because they had uh, some competitive problems with some other people in their industry, and what I brought to them was a great solution to their problem. Oh, that's great! And that that points out something. You know, it's interesting because a lot of your later career you spent uh, you know raising capital, and and uh, and I always you know there's this discussion between just capital, straight money and strategic advantage, right? And there are strategic buyers and strategic investors versus financial investors and some hybrids. And so, you know, I'd love you to talk a little bit about that because that obviously was a strategic uh, arrangement yeah. back then. Um, Listen, if you, can, if you can get strategic money, strategic money is always fantastic. And actually a lot of companies, large companies, Intel, Microsoft, a lot of the big tech companies have started, uh, you know, almost like incubators to make strategic investments in all kinds of companies. I mean, this has become very popular uh, where these big companies, they are looking for alignment. And I understand from, you know, I mean, I go to venture capital conferences and I'm still around a lot of these guys, even though I'm not in the venture business so much anymore. But uh, these big companies are uh, not demanding terribly onerous terms. I mean, they, uh, they may have a first route of refusal, but they're not tying you up in knots the way the venture capital companies do. Uh, these big companies who are these big strategic investors, they are really looking for companies, uh, even some of the airlines. I mean, JetBlue, I think, does some of this stuff. And I mean, companies are looking for ways to be innovative, ways to grow, ways to get their arms around some new ideas. And, you know, listen, the way the, the ecosystem works, little companies innovate, big companies operate. And, and they just, we just work together that way. So little companies come up with all these ideas and big companies buy those ideas and make little guys rich. And that's the way that it works. And then the big company who got the idea that, that we came up with then takes it to whatever the next level is going to be 
for them or for that idea. And it's, uh, it's a very good synergy. It's not, you, you can't always count on this kind of capital. Uh, it's not always the best capital. Uh, you probably will get better pricing on strategic capital because there's another uh, incentive for the investor other than just their straight return on investment uh, in a cash sense. So you'll probably get better terms. Or you might get uh, less expensive capital. But on the other hand, um, you know, you might get some great partners for life. I mean, hey, listen, the company that invested in me all those years ago, I'm still friends with a couple of the senior executives uh, that, that worked with me years and years ago. So it's quite extraordinary to have friends from 25 years ago, uh, you know, from these very large companies that, that, you know, now are retired and, you know, that are kind of far along in, in their life or their career. But, you know, we've all kind of grown up together and that's, you know, part of it. So uh, it was a great way for me to make a lot of nice friends. Yeah, oh, that's great. Um, and what, so, you know, you've trained so many people who are looking to uh, put funds together to raise capital, to invest in real estate and other things. And, uh, you know, you've had, so you have a great sampling of the ones who've been successful, the ones who've been not successful. You know, what stands in the way uh, of, of the people who are, who are not successful and, and what should, what are some of the tips the successful people should know about raising capital? Because it seems daunting to a lot of people who uh, don't live it every day like you. Well, let's say the guy's name is Bill, <laughs> who's trying to raise capital. You know what stands in Bill's way? What's that? Bill. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so say more. Say more about that. <laughs> um, raising capital is an art form, but there are very specific things that people can do. Uh, somebody who's done about 15 or 20 deals uh, reached out to me this morning and they said, Joel, uh, we're kind of going to the next level. Uh, would you take a look at one of my deals and tell me how to fine tune this? And they, because they reach out to their attorney. And, and the first thing I said is I said, look, I never, ever let the attorney structure the business arrangements of the deal. I, I give them the business arrangements, the terms that I want, and then they write it down correctly. And then they also put in all the legal terms. I don't, I don't ever tell them how to do that part, but I never let them work on the business terms. So as I'm reading uh, this person's operating agreement and some of their documentation, the operating agreement really describes the relationship between the manager of the deal and the investors. Uh, this manager has left so much stuff on the table because whoever helped her put this deal together uh, didn't know to ask for a lot of a lot of things that they probably need or should have put in the deal. They didn't put in fees. The way that they did their uh, capitalization, their their waterfall, the, in other words, the way the payouts work, uh, really is not investor friendly. Now, uh, some people would say, "Well, that's that's fine that it's not investor friendly. That protects the promoter." But here's the thing you always have to balance. You always have to balance giving a good deal to the investors and getting a good deal for the promoter, whoever the promoter is, whoever the company is that's raising the capital. Because if the terms are onerous or they're unfair or they're not investor friendly, then the investors aren't going to contribute the capital. And if they don't contribute the capital, then you're not going to be successful as the promoter who wants to raise the money. So it's not in your best interest. I've had many, many situations. Almost, almost everyone, the attorney has overstepped and given advice that they shouldn't be giving advice. Uh, and that, that is always business advice uh, because that's not what attorneys are supposed to do. But uh, there have been situations where somebody said, yeah, no, we've got, we've got great materials. We've got a great deal. Everything is terrific. So how are you doing? We haven't, well, we haven't raised any money. Well, why not? Uh, they don't know. 
And when they tell me what the deal is, frequently the terms are so ridiculous that no level-headed investor would move forward. And that, that's a really important thing to understand is whatever industry you're in, whatever business you're in, whatever activity you're doing, you have to talk to people who understand your space to give you a little bit of guidance on what relevant deal terms are going to be. So when you go to investors, I mean, you might find a couple of stupid people that'll, that'll give you the money, but they're going to give you smaller clumps. The second you get into bigger clumps, and a bigger clump is anybody that puts in, let's say, 250000 or more. If, they're gonna, if an individual person is going to put in a couple hundred grand, they're probably going to call an attorney. And the attorney's going to look at the deal and they're going to they're recognize that it's one-sided and they're going to recognize that there's problems. Uh, if you want even bigger money, and again, we're talking about preferred equity. We're not talking about uh, going to a lender who's going to loan you secured assets and, and tie up your house and your business and all your stuff. We're talking about equity money uh, that generally is unsecured and you know comes in some other form. So, uh, you know, deal structure is really, really important because that'll sandbag your sales effort right away. Then you have to really understand how to talk to investors, how to talk to people about the things that matter to them. You know, it, it doesn't matter what matters to the deal maker. It doesn't matter what matters to me or the business owner who's trying to raise the money. What matters is that the person who's going to give you the money understands what you're going to do with it, why you're doing it, and what's in it for them. And, you know, believe it or not, Corey, one of the things that is so prevalent is that, you know, the investor uh, asks a very simple question. In other words, you describe the deal, you tell them how great your company is, you tell them how great all the things you're working on are, and the investor says, wow, this really sounds great. So if, um, if I give you my money, what do I get? And you'd be surprised how often people don't understand the deal that the attorney has written for them. They just don't understand the terms. Now, I'm not saying you have to understand the nooks and crannies. I mean, that's your job as an attorney. But you have to understand the investment terms. In other words, you're going to get this percent, you're going to get this percent, you're going to get this, when you're going to get the money and how it's going to work. You know, you have to have some understanding of your deal. And I can't tell you how often people don't understand the terms of their own deal. No question, Joel. I mean, I think that's a great point. And, and similar to that, I also find that a lot of people don't even understand their own financial statements, their own existing financial statements. And, and what, one of the things I always say to people, and listen, this is not, as an attorney, this is not my area, but, I, but, but as a, a deal attorney who really does have, you know, a lot of experience on these things, I, you know, I, I point out some of these things to other people say, you got to go get help on this. And, um, you know, what I say, you know, so I'll ask them, for example, when I see financials in a, you know, whether it's in a private placement memo or an executive summary, or they're just raising money from friends and family or whatever it is, and I say, you know, well, what, you know, what are those projections based upon? And they can't tell you. And I and you know, what I always say to them is, listen, uh, the investors care a lot less about your numbers. They actually care about your footnotes and your assumptions and how you came to the numbers so that they can not only validate them, but know that you actually thought through it. And if you're not facile with that, these guys run themselves into trouble. So, it's, you know, it's a, a similar thing, right? Well, yeah. And, and this kind of falls into... Um you know, a, a kind of a third category, and that is that you have to know who your prospective investors are going to be. If they're going to be very unsophisticated people and you're going to get your money $50,000 at, at a time, then maybe you don't have to have good answers. But if you want to go up to the next level and, and raise your money, 100000 200000 300000 and in the private placement business, that's kind of you know where I work, 
you know, that's, that's, we work between a hundred thousand, let's say in 500,000. I mean, sometimes it's a little more, sometimes it's a little bit less, but more or less, that's kind of the ballpark. Um, we don't work with institutional people who are putting in 20, 30, 50 million at a time. That's not our space. So, you know, we're, we're raising on private placements, uh, you know, from generally uh, higher net worth people. And you have to know what kind of people you're going after. Because if you're going after somebody at the $200,000 mark, they may not go to an attorney, but they probably have enough experience that they're going to be able to uh, ask some decent questions. And you better be ready for that. Because if you can't answer their question, it, then, then that's not being respectful to them, their time. Uh, if they don't ask any questions, then, you know, then hey, that's, that's up to them. But if they do ask some questions, and you will absolutely have people that do, you need to be able to give them their answers. And you know, as you can imagine, Corey, I see a lot of private placements. I've got a lot of deal flow. Uh, there are people that call me all the time. Hey, Joel, would you look this over for me or just give me an idea about what you think? I saw one last week that was so complicated that I couldn't really follow it. Uh, it just had, it was, it was like an incubator. So this company was investing in other companies who invested in other companies and it was so complicated. And that's another important lesson is you want your deals to be simple enough that people can understand them. Now, just the nature of our business is complicated, so you can't help that. I mean, an operating agreement is complicated. A sale of uh, securities is complicated. And, and attorneys like you that do this kind of work that uh, put these things together. But the fundamental deal doesn't have to be complicated. That can really be pretty simple. And if it's not simple, then you're really not going to be able to get people uh, to understand it. If they don't understand it, they're not going to do it because a confused, a confused mind always says no. Uh, that's that's uh, always uh, well known. And and you don't want to put yourself in that situation. Absolutely. Hey, Joel, Joel there's, there's a, I, I want to go in a little different direction here uh, just uh, in the last couple of minutes we have before we uh, uh, start to conclude. And that is you, you and I, uh, a couple of days ago, had, uh, I was fortunate enough to have a cigar and a drink with you. And one of the things we talked about were these, uh, these opportunity zones out of the new tax uh, law. And, uh, you know, this is not going to air for, you know, for a couple of months, but it's, it will still be very, very relevant then. So can you just give a high level, uh, you know, not only with regard to the 1031 exchanges, which you can mention, but how it affects business people as well and what the opportunity uh, is there that a lot of people may not know about? This is, this is the most remarkable uh, tax shelter in United States history, probably the greatest tax shelter in United States history. Uh, it was snuck into the uh, Trump Tax Act of December 2017, so the uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. And what they basically said was, look, we want to move money from wealthy people into distressed communities because the Trump position is that uh, the private sector does things better than the public sector. So let's get wealthy people to move money into these distressed areas that'll fundamentally help the economy, that will fundamentally uh, increase the number of dollars that are moved into the treasury of the United States government, and it will help the states, it will help uh, real estate all over the country. And so it's a very good trickle-down, supply-side kind of approach to uh, how all this stuff works. And so what they basically said was, if you have money that's in a 1031 exchange, uh, capital gains that are not taxed, or let's say you do a stock transaction. Let's say you bought Amazon stock uh, you know, uh, five years ago, and now you made a million dollars, let's just say. If you take the capital gain that you made that has not yet been taxed, 
whether it's from a 1031 or whether it's just a straight transaction, long-term, short-term, doesn't even matter. If you put that money into an opportunity zone, and these opportunity zones were defined by the state governors, the state governors of each state uh, nominated uh, different locations in their state. They submitted the list to the IRS. The IRS confirmed it. So these are census-designated places that are distressed, uh, low-income, you know, and, and so forth. So they identified 8,700 of these opportunity zones. And these opportunity zones are eligible now to receive this capital that hasn't yet been taxed. So if you take uh, money and you put it into an opportunity zone, two things are going to happen. Number one, if you hold it there for 10 years, if you will, let's say this, five years, some of it goes away. Uh, seven years, more tax goes away. But at the end of 10 years, 100% of all the tax from the investment that you put into the opportunity zone is completely abated. Then any money that you made during that 10-year period of time on the new investment is completely abated. So you get a double whack. And, and here's the other thing is, this is almost like a roadmap to a great investment. Remember, I'm a professional investor. I mean, that's that's my thing, right? So the government says, we want you to pour money into these 8,700 areas. There's a pretty good chance that these 8,700 areas are going to have a little bit better growth than everybody else does because there's going to be a lot more uh, you know, infusion of capital. And so there'll be a lot more demand for these properties uh, than in other places where they don't have this mandate from the government. And because the returns are going to be artificially high because there's abatement of all this tax, there's going to be tremendous growth that's uh, greater than what the rest of the economy does. So even if you don't have the tax benefit of a 1031 or other capital gains, there's still going to be fantastic growth from an investment point of view in some of these lower income areas. So just, uh, you, you can't do this personally. This is, it's not, this is not a personal deal. Uh, you either have to do this in an LLC, a corporation, or, or, or even better to go into a qualified fund because you don't just put money in, paint the building and, and say, okay, now give me a, a discount. That's not what it is. The government wants substantial improvement. And a substantial improvement means if you buy a piece of land for a million, you got to put in another, let's say, 500 grand uh, into redevelopment, rehab, something uh, of that building. So it's really for development and, and substantial rehabilitation. So, th yeah, so this is great. I mean, and, and when I follow the logic on this through, and, uh, you know, you always talk about profiting from the inside, which I love, you know, that phrase that you use and, and, and you know, it's a big part of what you do. You know, obviously people who have uh, pent up uh, capital gains in 1031 exchanges or in, you know, and other things that they own, you know, there's a huge, huge tax benefit. But what you also said was, even if you start something new and you have no pent up uh, gains that you can benefit from, that the gain on over the next 10 years uh, from the new thing you start in these opportunity zones is also uh, going to be tax free. Or, you know, it'll be waived at the end of 10 years completely. And then even if you, you know, in my mind, uh, you know, the other thing is, you know, if, if, if uh, I think smart people are going to start uh, paying attention to where this money is going, which of those opportunity zones, you know, there's a concentration of money going, because obviously, you know, if you either buy real estate or start businesses or, you know, things in those in those zones, and a lot of those areas need, you know, uh, more more business and, co and commerce, et cetera. Uh, you know, you're going to be able to piggyback on the increased economic opportunity there. 
Uh, and so I think there's a lot of opportunity for uh, all types of people up and down the spectrum. Well, then back to the topic that we're, we're on, which is raising capital, uh, raising capital in these opportunity zones just got easier. Because if you start a business or you have a business, you move your business to one of these opportunity zones, it, people are going to be inclined to invest in those areas. And so your ability to attract crap capital uh, increases. And, you know, the Treasury regulations haven't yet been finalized. So there's some questions about what happens. But put it like this. Let's say a venture capital company invests in, uh, in a company and, you know, a couple of years later it explodes. And now uh, whatever it is, they made a couple billion dollars that couple billion dollars is probably going to be exempt from tax because it got made in an opportunity zone. So it's not just regular people, it's businesses, it's private equity, it's venture capital. There's going to be a lot of action in these opportunity zones. And, you know, you talked about my show, which is profit from the inside. Uh, this is the inside track that people just aren't going to hear about for, for quite a long time. So your listeners, Corey, are kind of getting the inside track on something that, uh, most CPAs, most attorneys have not heard about because it just it's uh, it's still it's still a little bit formative. Money's starting to pour in, but the final rules aren't even uh, addressed yet by the IRS. So that'll happen probably in late January. Uh, so that's great, Joel, and and I think that's a great uh, thing for our listeners to uh, start paying attention to. Certainly, if if they haven't heard of it yet, uh, definitely read up on it. Um, so, so, Joel, uh, how do uh, so? I, there's a few things that we've mentioned. I, I want people to know how to get, reach you. You know, generally where they where they find out more information on you. I know you know you have your own podcast. I know you have a white paper on this opportunity zone uh, stuff. Uh, so, where do people find you and uh, and that, all that information? Well, you know, the for speaking and, and other kinds of uh, personal activities, JoelBlock.com is probably the best place to go. But the uh, information on the white paper uh, related to the opportunity zones and for information about my company, we're probably going to start an opportunity zone fund also. So people with capital gains can pour money into these uh, types of deals. Then we'll, we'll work on that with them. So uh, if people want to talk to me, they just go to uh, either bullseye cap, which is short for bullseye capital.com uh, bullseye cap.com, or just go to joelblock.com and you can navigate to the same pages from, uh, from there. So uh, there's a lot of stuff. Uh, if people are sophisticated, if they have questions, I'm, I'm always happy to take questions. And we have a whole video library. We've got a lot of stuff that people can can tap into. That's great, Joel. I, I so appreciate you coming on the show. It's It's been great to have you. Well, thanks for uh, inviting me. I really appreciate it. And I hope that some of the things we talked about are helpful. That's great. And thank you, Fueling Deals listeners, for tuning in. Remember, there's only one difference between companies that grow inorganically and those who don't. And it's unrelated to size, amount of capital, or any other factor other than that the owners and executives of companies that do deals make a decision to do deals, and then they take action. It's time to refuel now. So until next week, Corey Kupfer signing out. Thank you again for tuning in. Be sure to leave Fueling Deals a rating and review on iTunes and Google. Check out all our episodes at fuelingdeals.com to find out more resources to accelerate your business growth. 